Hi, I'm Joyce Testerman, and welcome back to the Hidden Things in Hidden Things. This is part two for the uh, second podcast section that we've done, which is, uh, I guess, the the tail end of chapter two and all of chapter three. So the digital answering machine. People mention this every so often. They'll mention the tech in general. We talked about the phone the last time or the digital answering machine this time. So the funny thing about the digital answering machine, which seems like painfully old tech because we really all just use voicemail now, if we even use voicemail. So everyone's basically like a voicemail. Digital digital answering machine still seems kind of antiquated. The very first draft of the story, actually the answering machine was a tape answering machine. I know the answering machine that I'm thinking of because I had it. Um in my dorm room in college with two tapes and there was one for the answer that you gave to everybody and then there was one for the recording messages and so forth. So in the story, she actually takes the tape out and hands it to Johnson to bring to the tech guys. And instead, now we're handing the entire machine. It's actually become less convenient for her to um, have Johnson look at it because she has to hand him the whole, the whole box. Again, I wrote the first draft of this in 2002 and the technology has changed so drastically in the last 11 years that... Uh, I, I think almost anything that you do with the technology at this point in time is going to seem somewhat dated. I know rolling my eyes a little bit listening to Will Wheaton read Agent to the Stars, which is sort of high tech and it's science fiction and it's out in Hollywood and everyone's using the best of all possible technology. And it's it's terrible. Like there's pagers and there's, you know, Nokia brick phones and no smartphones and especially with modern technology, it's very easy to get dated very quickly right now, much more so probably than the 60s, 70s. I've been talking about that with a friend of mine about just various technology and the stuff that we consider to be perfectly normal now was literally something we didn't ever think was going to happen five years ago. Uh, Certainly not in pocket. I say many, many times that I live in the future and jetpacks aside, we really do. There's some of the stuff that happens on a daily basis today that I do right now that I think almost nothing of is something that is science fiction as little as five years ago. The kind of stuff Cory Doctorow would be writing about in a sci-fi story that he was setting in the very, very near future with highly predictable technology is the stuff that's happening right now. It still feels a little bit weird to me when I'm going around. Luckily, there isn't a lot of tech in Hidden Things for a number of very good reasons, so it doesn't come up too often. And I don't understand the technology behind recording music which is why we have somebody helping us with this. Um, so a lot of the stuff when it comes to the music and things like that, I don't get into the details because I never knew them in the first place. Oh, Agent Walker and his flub line. I think it's funny uh, because the first time we recorded this, when we had the hiss, um, you actually were going to stop me and correct me because I said behind the grave. And you were like, no, it's beyond, or beyond the grave. And, and luckily Calliope corrects him right away. That's one of the tells. It's one of the things where we start to see a culture. I think that like an ingrained culture that they don't even think about within the hidden things that it's not just some random troll underneath a bridge. It's not just looking at, I guess, vampires in Chicago from the point of view of the humans. And you're always seeing the culture from the outside. This is an ingrained thing. It's as simple as walking into little Italy and things are different in that area because that's the culture that's there. And to a certain extent, the hidden lands and really all the places where these sorts of beings congregate becomes that sort of highly concentrated culture area where weird things bleed out. We just see a hint of this with Walker. It's meant to be a hint down the road where we finally go, oh, dun, 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 he's this guy. Um, 
but it, it, it goes back to the stuff where things are just a little bit off, a little bit different, a little bit not quite right with all the people that Calliope's about to start spending a lot of time with. Why did Lauren knock if she didn't expect Calliope to be there in the first place? Well, you got to remember the front door is glass and there's a couple of windows, which is a little bit unusual in this area, the, you know, in this neighborhood anyway, but the glass door, the front windows, the lights are on in the front and in Calliope's office, probably, and in Josh's office. So the place is lit up, probably the only place on the street that's lit up at this time of night. So for Lauren to go down there, I imagine in the back of my head that she's got a key and it never came up. So she walks up there and she sees that, um, you know, Calliope's Jeep is out in front, which I'm sure she probably knows that Calliope drives a Jeep because it would make her mad. And she needs more ammunition to be angry with Calliope most of the time. And so she sees Calliope's Jeep and the lights are on. So she knocks, not even worrying about the key because she could have let herself in, but it's, it's the kind of thing that Lauren would do where she would make Calliope come let her in. So yeah, the scene is pretty tense. Lauren actually had a different name once upon a time. And the name was very similar to Calliope. It started with the C. It wasn't the same syllables or anything like that, but it was, it was easy to get the two confused a little bit when you were reading it. So that there was a, a bit of revision there, but I mean, I like this scene, even though Lauren doesn't get to spend a lot of time in the story. I spent a lot of time thinking about Lauren and, and because of the effect that she had on, on Josh and Callie and also stuff I want to do with her in future stories. When you look at it from the point of view of the Bechdel test, they spend the whole scene talking about Josh. I personally think they spend a lot of hours not talking about Josh that we don't write about. But honestly, this is a test. The Bechdel test is a test for me as a writer. I think it passes the Bechdel test because yes, they talk about a guy. The dude just died. It doesn't matter who it is. They're going to talk about him. And I, one of my main tests for these kinds of things is if I took the conversation and made and switched the gender on one of the characters would the conversation still work? Is it still believable? Is it the kind of thing that people would talk about? Um, I do this a lot with Calliope. Calliope was my first time where I wrote a female character all the way through as the lead. So I was really testing it. And I didn't have a test for, is it a believable female character? I just sort of said, if I were in this situation, would I do this? So the Bechdel test is what is it supposed to be. It's two female characters talking. And at no point do they talk about a guy. There is one for sure that definitely passes that test and it's Calliope and her sister much later. There's a lot of anger, um, but they're not talking about a guy. And I think a lot of the conversations that she has with her mom are like that. Although her mom is also like, you know, have you got anybody out there at one point, but a lot of it's not that I am a male author writing a female character. And I think I do a fairly good job of it most of the time. And I think, honestly, I think this scene is very honest. I've never had uh, a reader come back to me and say, this is not what two women who have both been romantically involved with this character who's died. The feedback I've gotten on it has been that this scene feels right. There's the appropriate amount of anger and there's the appropriate amount of snark and spite. I think that there's a bit of bonding. And I, I say that based on what happens next that we aren't going to get a chance to talk about in this podcast, but in the, in the next couple of scenes, uh, I don't, they didn't, they don't leave hugging or anything like that, but I think that they, there's a bit of a bond there. They, they got through a, a pretty shitty night together. Why didn't Lauren just grab the Johnny Walker and then go back to the house and drink? Her folks are in theory there. I think we find that out because they were, they call the cops the next morning and are looking for her because she's not there. So it isn't that she doesn't have anybody. She doesn't really have anybody that knows Josh. I mean, her parents probably didn't entirely improve of him. Nice guy, but not really the background that they were hoping for, for their Harvard lawyer daughter. So she's basically sitting 
in my mind, in some incredibly immaculate sitting room in her house drinking, and then she can't anymore. So she's going to just leave. And as she's driving, she finds herself on the way to Josh's office. And then she concocts a reason to be going there. Just because it's a place that's probably going to be the, the highest concentration of Josh. She, in my mind, she and he spent a lot of time making the house perfect, which means making it not very much like the king of disorganization. Uh, I imagine that leather couch. I mean, in my mind, the reason for that angry expression at the leather couch, I think when I first wrote it, I, I imagined that she was looking at that couch as some sort of suspicious thing between Josh and Callie. And that's a legitimate reason. It may even be why she's got that expression on her face. But if we're not entirely sinister about it, it's possible she's just mad about it because she, she and Josh had a big argument about that couch staying or not in some room in the house. And he told her he would throw it away. And instead he brought it to the office. And she realized she never really won that, that argument. And, you know, she's a lawyer. Winning an argument is kind of a big deal. So maybe it's just something as innocent as that. I think, so she gets here and it's this concentrated Josh area when she probably really needs it because she took so much time making him not leave a fingerprint on the house, so to speak. So she's there. And there's somebody there who knows him. So she can sort of really soak that up. And I... I don't know that she thinks about any of this, but sitting, you know, she sits before she finds out about the booze. She sits, you know, she looks around, she gets angry, then she plops down in the chair and she's, and she's, she's staying for a while, Johnny Walker or not. So yeah, I think it's because she needs it. So why does Vicus pick this particular time to come in? Now, right now, one, at least one person who's listening to this, hi Edie, um, is crossing her fingers and hoping to God I explain the thing about everything happening at 143. I'm not going to. So, sorry, but that's not going to happen. Shows up at this point in time because it's 143 and 143 is significant and I'm not talking about why that is. He's been watching the place pretty much nonstop since Calliope got back here, trying to decide the most appropriate time. His other appropriate time that he tried when he was interrupted by the cops is important too, and I'm not going to get into why that is either. Anyway, so he picks this time to come in there and also is because it's a classic Chandler thing. When things start to wind down in the conversation, I have a guy come in with a gun. In this case, it was a guy, he doesn't have a gun. He's got face paint and magical Hungarian that he's about to spew all over the room. So a funny thing about the booze, actually, the Johnny Walker, uh, I had to look that up and it actually for a, for a significant amount of time in the original drafts of the story, the... Johnny Walker wasn't Jocker. I think I was calling it Jim Walker or Jimmy Walker. Why do they name all whiskeys like after people? Big reveal here. I'm not a big whiskey drinker due to a rather unfortunate event in my past. So, which I'm not going to be telling on any director, you know, any little cut track or anything like that. But Johnny Walker, is it Jim Beam and Jack Daniels? I had conflated these. So I had one that was wrong. And somebody read it and it's like, I don't think that's right. It was probably like Jack Beam or I don't know what I did. And so I finally looked them all up and looked up whiskeys and looked up American whiskeys and finally worked my way backwards and, and got it to be Johnny Walker. Sometimes you got to research. I, I think I, for a while I just had like square brackets around the name, knowing that it was wrong and not really caring because that's not the point. No, I did not taste test. I will, <laughs> I guarantee you if Johnny Walker is kind of a bad whiskey okay, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. But for me, that sort of is true for all whiskeys. They're all bad for me at this point in time. I used to like them very much. 
And I think I like them a little bit too much. And they decided to see other people. So luckily, luckily for me. That's coming up for the next scene. We get to see Vicus throw a little bit of mojo around. Calliope being her physical badass self, kicking somebody through a door, which we get a little bit of foreshadowing from in this scene. And we get to see some other stuff with the detectives and Lauren and Callie and stuff like that. So I'm looking forward to that one too. There's some good stuff coming up. Okay, so we'll see you for the next podcast.